Guys, I just want to speak a quick word. I want, I want to encourage us, because when I hear that song, uh, the power in the name of Jesus, breaking chains and these kinds of things, um, I want to encourage us that there are times that there's you know, the need for the power of God to come and set people free. And we see this. But I want to, I want to exhort us afresh that the way you help people stay free is root them in the truth, okay? And so it's the need for power and truth, right? So we, we can see people set free, and the power of God comes, and there's a liberation by the Holy Spirit. Amen. But if we don't get people rooted in truth, what's going to happen? They're going to go right back. And so getting people rooted in truth, this is one of the reasons it's important that we stay under solid instruction, you know, and we want to be a people that stay under the Word of God. So, all right, amen. Um, here's what I'm going to do. Uh, I'm going to talk, teach for just a couple moments from the board and then take us into the notes because I hope that you'll see the notes unfold in regards to what I'm going to say right now. So I'm going to do a little bit of drawing. I'll pull out my red pen. <clears throat> Genesis 1 through 11, 2,000 years, three divine human rebellions, and God says, I'm done. Last straw, right? That was what was going on at Babel. And God turns, Yahweh turns, and He says, I'm going to begin dealing with one man, and through that man, I'm going, Abram, I'm going to build a great nation, and I'm going to bring that seed that was promised in Genesis 3:15. I'm going to bring him, Messiah, right? But we don't get the conclusion in the New Testament at the cross. It's a necessary means that Yahweh's going to come and do the restoration of all things at the end of the age into the age to come. Okay, But we're going to begin with this one man. God goes down into the region where he divided, scattered, and separated nations. He calls one out, Abram, and he calls him to the land of Israel, the land of promise. He he then begins developing, as we know, the patriarchs, right? We didn't go, we're not, we didn't work through these things, but Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, who became, who become the fathers of the nation of Israel, and then of course the dividing of uh, Jacob's 12 sons become Israel, right? That's where we get that. Um, some things transpire in the land, and of course, by the time we get to Genesis 50. Uh, 70, 70 Jews end up uh, coming down. As you remember, Joseph is there as one set by God. Sometimes God has set you in a place to be a forerunner, right? And this is part of what's going on. Joseph uh, comes down to Egypt, and we know the unfolding of his story at the end of Genesis and then, again, we talked about this. When you shut Genesis 50 and open Exodus 1, they've graduated to this great nation of people. They've, they've graduated from 70 to 3 million. Okay, Genesis 50, Exodus 1. And there's been a period of 400 years in the narrative. All right? So God is building a great nation in the context of bondage and slavery. So what does he do now? He takes one man, Moses, on the backside of the desert. He encounters him, Exodus 3, 
and Moses, go set my people free. And there's a lot there that we could, we could look at. Moses brings now three million out into the desert area. Uh, I think one of the traditional sites of, of uh, Mount Sinai, it would be somewhere in this region. Uh, a good brother, friend, I never met him, but he's a friend of many friends of mine, <laughs> Joel Richardson, has done a lot of extensive background somewhere in this area, I think. Isn't that right, David? Maybe somewhere down in this area would have actually been the region of Sinai. Okay, and so they're going to come through the Red Sea. Whether it, Wherever you find that, as they come through the Red Sea, they come now to this, this Exodus 19.20, and God is going to move from uh, into a, a covenant called the Sinai Covenant. Okay, that's what we're going to begin dealing with tonight. After giving of the Sinai Covenant, and Israel is agreeing to that, again, we'll get to these notes in a moment, um, we find... Um, 40 years of wandering. I heard a guy say this one time, God's purposes are linear, but if we don't walk in obedience, they'll become circular. And you'll just spend 40 years wandering. <laughs> because it should have taken them about 14 days to get to the promised land. But it took them 40 years. And God was, you know, one of the things I think is going on, God is working Egypt out of them, right? And, of course, he starves them. He, and all over 20 years old, the Alf and only Joshua Caleb and the 20-year-olds, the young adults, go in. So we got 40 years of wilderness wanderings, whatever that all looked like. And then we come here um, to the other side of the Red Sea. And this is the place where we pick up what some people call second law. It's, it's the reiteration of, the, of this covenant God makes with Israel and Israel makes with God. He's going to reiterate it 40 years later to that group that's going to go in and, quote, take the promised land. So what we want to do is just take that, a little bit of that narrative background story, and um, let's start working through the notes a little bit. I really think this is possibly one of our most important sessions uh, thus far. And, and I think we'll see that uh, as we work through here. Um, if you will, go ahead and open up to Exodus 19, because we're going to get there in just a moment. We're going to move from the covenant at Sinai to the latter days <laughs> tonight. Not the latter day saints, but the <laughs> Well, actually, yeah. All right, Roman number one, uh, Sinai Covenant is established when they come out of bondage. God's going to put on display in front of the nations that I'm making covenant with this people right here. Okay, so a layout of the book of Exodus shows us two main portions. There's redemption from Egypt, Exodus 1 to 15, and then there's revelation at Sinai, the other half of the book of Exodus. There are two things that are being revealed in the latter part of the book of Exodus, and it's God gives his law, right? His ten, his ten words, his ten commandments, we'll see in a moment. And he gives the pattern for the tabernacle because God wants his instruction and his presence in the midst of his people. And he's calling his people, Israel, to steward his law, instruction, and his presence by way of the tabernacle. Steward these. And guys, 
we, we need to be a people, and we've said this, that we need to steward the Word of God. We need to steward the presence of God. If, if, we're, if we're even going to function in life, we, we ought to, stu- uh, uh, we ought to uh, steward those well. The Old Covenant is actually, y'all have heard the word Old Testament, New Testament, uh, meaning Testament, meaning covenant. That word Old Covenant is actually barely used in the Scripture, so it's not really a good it's not really a good way to, to say it, okay? So the Old Covenant is actually not the best term in regards to this subject. It, w- it would probably be better to say covenant at Sinai because that's what's going on. There's a covenant at Sinai with Yahweh and Israel uh, as a nation. That's what's going on. And God initiated this covenant with national Israel. Now, the covenant with Abraham is with a man and his seed, yes, his descendants, but we move from, from this, uh, I'm probably going to get ahead in notes, but we're going to move from a unilateral covenant is Yahweh making a covenant with Abraham and, and Yahweh is going to carry that forward. Um, the bilateral covenant becomes an agreement. It's agreed upon with not an individual. That's why I don't even like calling it the Mosaic covenant. It's better probably to say Sinai covenant or even the covenant with Israel because this covenant at Sinai is not with an individual Abraham land and descendants. This is a covenant that's going to become an agreement between Yahweh and Israel. We're going to read those passages here. So let's look at this this uh, line here. This covenant bilateral is it's a it's an agreement between two parties, God and Israel, and Yahweh is going to require exclusive devotion from Israel. Okay, and this is going to set a pattern of what's necessary all the way to the end of this age of why Yahweh will always, and I want you to think about this, Yahweh always inspects what He expects. Do you know that in your own life? Remember this, in business, uh, in family life, we all always ought to inspect what we expect. And Yahweh is going to do that, and we're going to see it in a numer- a numerous ways tonight. Look at this Exodus 19. Verse 8, well, let's just start in in Exodus 19 and 20. Yahweh comes down on Sinai. This was always like a major uh, event, not only the Exodus event, but Yahweh coming down on Sinai. It's it's loud. (laughs) It's it's clouds and thunder and lightning. Uh, It's it's really a rather uh, fascinating event experience to the point that Israel is at the bottom of the mountain and they didn't even want to go up. And and God said, don't come up, I'll kill you. It's really, but Moses was able to go up. And so it's really like, this is a battle that that they're seeing Yahweh. I I get over to like, um, well, it's it's another portion of a passage, Exodus uh, 24, when they actually, the 70 with with uh, Moses went up and they saw like the feet of the God of Israel and he appeared uh, to be as a pavement of sapphire clear as the sky itself and um, there, it's like man they, they saw like the glory of God okay and, and uh, this is what's going on at Sinai and God's going to give them the law the ten commandments and he's going to give them the tabernacle dimensions again so that they would steward his instruction and they would steward his presence. 
That's what's going on here at Sinai. Okay, now it's going to become that which they're to carry and to walk out. But look at Exodus 19, verse 8. All the people answered together and said, All that Yahweh has spoken, we will do. So we're seeing the agreement with the entire nation. They're saying, yes, what Yahweh says, we will obey. There's, again, there's this agreement going on. Look forward, a couple other passages. Look at Exodus 23. He tells them, verse 31, I will fix your boundary when you go in, the Red Sea, the Euphrates River. I, in other words, I'm gonna, here's the land boundaries that I'm going to give to you, Israel, and I'm going to deliver the inhabitants of the land, and you're to drive them out. Verse 32, Exodus 23, 32, You shall make no covenant with them or with their gods. So we, we know this background language. Verse 33, they shall not live in your land lest they make you sin against me for it will serve uh, for if you serve their gods it will surely be a snare unto you. So chapter 24 verse 3 Moses came recounted to the people all the words of Yahweh and all the ordinances and all look at this verse uh, Exodus 24 3 all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which Yahweh has spoken, we will do. So again, there's national agreement with the nation, with Yahweh, that whatever you are speaking, we will obey. And this is the covenant that Israel is making with Yahweh, Yahweh is making with Israel, that he is going to come and hold them accountable to this covenant. He's going to hold them accountable to the instruction, the ten words, and he's going to hold them accountable to his presence. And how you steward those two, especially when you get into the land, how you steward those things is going to really matter. All right, look at uh, Exodus 34. Let me read this piece here. Exodus 34, verse 10. Uh, God said, Behold, I'm going to make a covenant before all your people, and I'll perform miracles which have not been produced in all the earth among the nations. Verse 11, be sure to observe all that I'm commanding you this day. Behold, I'm going to drive out the Amorite, Canaanite, Hittite, Parasite. Is that right? Parasite. <laughs> Is that how you say that? Hivite and the Jebusite. Verse 12, now he says this, watch yourself, Israel. Watch yourself. This is Yahweh. Watch yourself that you make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land in which you're going, lest it become a snare in your midst. I wish I could carry this into the New Testament because there's a snare at the end of the age, okay, because Israel is going to enter into covenant, okay, and they're going to enter into a covenant called death in, in Isaiah 28. Um, and it's that covenant that's going to set in motion the end of the age trouble that's going to come against this nation. Okay. And we'll, we'll probably talk a little bit more about that next week. But he goes on and he says, when you get in, uh, he's talking about when you get into the land, verse 14, you shall not worship any other God, for Yahweh, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous Elohim. He's a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, play the harlot with their gods. 
He's warning them. And then he says, and, and you sacrifice to their gods, and someone invite you to eat of his sacrifice. Verse 16, you take some of his daughters and, and sons, and his daughters play the harlot with their, their gods, and cause your sons to also play the harlot with their gods. You shall make for yourself no molten gods, no molten Elohim. And so we, 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 it's just this back and forth where God's like, you're going into the land, and you're to be faithful to me. You're to, you're, you're to be faithful to this covenant that you're making here. And you're to be faithful to the Ten Commandments and to my presence. This is, this is what Yahweh is expecting of them, okay? Um, and again, um, well, we don't need to pick up the, the end of that. Um, let's move on to number two. Roman numeral two, the Sinai covenant reiterated. Now, again, this covenant was made with national Israel at Mount Sinai down in this region. And then they go into 40 years of wandering through the wilderness, okay? And they come up on the other side of Jordan River, and that's where we open up the book of Deuteronomy. So let's go there. We're going to begin looking at a few, a few passages in Deuteronomy. Because the thing now that Yahweh is getting ready to do, uh, there, there's, a, there's a shift. In other words, he, there was the establishment of, of the covenant with Israel at Sinai, but now he's going to reiterate that same covenant with this group that's getting ready to go into the land. Because he knows that you can't, well, I'll get to that in just a moment. Let's, let's just move here. Moving uh, under Roman number two, moving into the book of Deuteronomy, Yahweh iterate, reiterates the Sinai covenant with national Israel through the leadership of Moses, and he's near his death, okay? Moses is getting ready to die because at, you know, at the end of Deuteronomy, the opening of the book of Joshua, the baton of leadership is being passed from Moses to Joshua because Joshua is the one now going to take them into the land and so um, Israel is being commissioned now to walk with Yahweh their God through precise stipulations to steward the law, his instruction, and the tabernacle, his presence, as they move into the promised land. I think I said that about five times now, but that's really important, okay? This reiteration of the covenant in Deuteronomy between Yahweh and Israel is going to move beyond just general agreements and stipulations as in Exodus, okay? Now... In the book of Deuteronomy, God's going to add specific blessings and curses beyond Leviticus 26. Now in like Deuteronomy 28, he's going to add specific like blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. If you come into the land, you obey me, there'll be blessing. You disobey, there'll be curse. Let's look at this emboldened. Uh, this might just be the teaching of the night that's really, really crucial, okay? Up up under Roman numeral two, the emboldened part at the end. Israel cannot exist in the promised land long term while living in covenant disobedience to the law of Yahweh without facing the consequences of covenant discipline, curses, and expulsion from the land. So now let's turn and look at Israel's historic and future disciplines for covenant disobedience, okay? Although there are many times in history of Israel that they have come under covenant discipline curses and expulsions from the land, i.e., we know Assyria came into the northern kingdom, took them, took them captive, right? We know that Babylon came in in five, uh, 605 B.C. and took uh, 
Judah and tore down the walls and tore down the temple. It was a major destruction and took them over into Babylon for 70 years. Okay? And then we get into the New Testament and right after the time of Jesus, 70 AD, we see Rome with Arabs. Because it wasn't just Rome, it was actually, you can do some great background on this. A guy named Joel Richardson does some fabulous insight, a book called Mideast Beast where he, he, he spends a whole chapter talking about it was not just Rome that brought destruction in 70 AD. They were involved, but it was actually the surrounding Arab nations that actually began doing much of the destruction. There's a lot there. I'm going to leave that alone, but it is a picture of, of a future uh, time of that happening. But these three, okay, these specific three, what we would say curses, or discipline curses and expulsion from the land, um, they are real. They happened in history. But Israel, get to my notes here, Israel will face a final end of the age, last day's time of covenant discipline, curses, and expulsion from the land during the last three and a half years of this age that that all things which are written may be fulfilled. And you can look at these passages. I would strongly urge us to study these out, okay? The Song of Moses, where David's getting ready to go in just a moment, Deuteronomy 32, at the end of Torah is Yahweh's prophetic warning of future eschatological, end of, end of time, end of the age discipline of the covenant at the end of this age, as understood and continually alluded to by the prophets, Jesus, and the apostles. See, the prophets are, they are coming back and they're calling Israel to the law. And they're calling them, if you don't obey Yahweh in the land, then those things that are promised as disciplines, curses, and expulsion from the land are going to come upon you. And the prophets say this over and over and over. Jesus spoke it multiple times as a, quote, end time warning. And then the apostles, Peter, Paul, and John pick up the same reality. They're just, they're saying the same thing, that there's going to be an end of the age, uh, divine discipline, Curses and expulsion from the land for you, Israel. Because again, you remember the point? Israel cannot live in their land and be in a place of covenant disobedience to Yahweh. That ought to make us sit up with like you know, chill bumps on the back of our neck to consider what's going on with Israel in the land since 1948. The modern state of Israel is... Uh, it is a necessary means because what Yahweh is going to do at the end of the age is bring them to the end of themselves. They're going to pass through more severe than Assyria, Babylon, or 70 AD. They're going to go through a, a more severe time than they've ever, ever passed. And this is according to like Ma- uh, Matthew 24. There'll be a time that's never been in history, Matthew 24, 21, Okay. And so this, this thing is going to play out again. Now, I want you to look at a footnote at the bottom of your page. I just gave you like six phrases that are all the last three and a half years of this age 
called Jacob's Trouble, Great Distress, Great Tribulation, Day of Calamity, Overwhelming, Scourge and Trampling, Shattering the Strength of the Power of the Holy People, Days of Vengeance, Sudden Destruction, Birth Pains, Travail. All of those, that language and all the passages that I'm listing are the last three and a half years that's coming for the Jewish people in their land. Holocaust was bad. Holocaust was massive. Six million Jews. But that happened in Europe. It didn't happen in the Holy Land. This end time travail and birth pains and trouble is, must come upon Israel at the end of the age, according to uh, where even David's going to take us. So let's look at this last piece. Roman numeral four. Israel's future restoration. Now, he, 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 this is a major point, and it's really important, okay, that we grasp this. Um, and here, here's the big idea without me even really having to go into the notes. There is a... Israel must be restored as a nation, okay, and receive the new covenant and receive the Holy Spirit as a nation like what happened at Sinai is going to happen in Jerusalem, Zion, at the end. Israel, through Jacob's trouble, through this last three and a half year period of travail, it is to produce in them that they have no more strength within themselves where they will cry out and they will receive Messiah at the second coming. And what God's going to do through that is going to restore the entire nation that the way that they came into national agreement and covenant with Yahweh at Sinai, they're going to do it called the new covenant in the age to come. It's a massive teaching. And so I would encourage you to grasp uh, these passages, work through them. Here will be a good homework assignment. Reread at Ezekiel 34 to 39 in one sitting and look at the restoration of Israel. It's just sitting in like every one of those chapters. And here's the thing we understand. Assyria's destruction did not bring the restoration of Israel as promised right here in these passages. We're going to read in just a moment. Babylon did not produce the restoration of Israel as we understand it. Rome did not produce the restoration of Israel. Actually, Israel was exposed. Is that the word? They were, huh? They were scattered. That's hitting me. I'm sorry. They were, they were scattered from the land when Rome came in. And what we're looking for is a regathering of Israel when they are in covenant with Yahweh. They are, uh, they have the Holy Spirit upon them. Their sins are forgiven as a nation. These are the requirements for the new covenant according to like Jeremiah 31. Those things have not been fulfilled and so we know that there's an end time restoration for Israel that's never happened. Every time you see expulsion from the land and covenant curses, there's never been the restoration of Israel as we see promised here. So let's read these last couple verses and this will uh, segue into David. Deuteronomy chapter 4. I'm going to read from two passages, Deuteronomy 4 and Deuteronomy 30. And I would let this work, okay, in your heart. Uh, let me give you a little background. David and I, uh, we sat for three hours for an entire, the entire summer of 2016 
around my pool from June to August, three hours every Thursday or Friday, 7 a.m. to 10 a.m. with a good cup of coffee. And we worked through Deuteronomy 4, Deuteronomy 30, uh, 26 to Deuteronomy 32. We worked through those passages and all those hours. And so the last four years, that stuff's just been growing on my heart and growing on my mind. And it's like, whoa. And you, here's the point. The eschatology and the restoration of Israel is sitting in these passages. And any other narrative must bow and submit to the Jewish narrative of what God has in store for his people Israel. Okay? So, <clears throat> Deuteronomy 4, verse 25. We're going to read just two passages and we'll be done. I'm going to try to just read them and really not even make much. Um, just let the word speak. Okay, Deuteronomy 4, 25. When you become the father of children and children's children and remain long in the land and act corruptly and make an idol in the form of anything and do that which is evil in the sight of Yahweh your Elohim as to provoke him to anger. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will surely perish quickly from the land where you are going over the Jordan to possess it. You shall not live long on it, but shall be utterly destroyed. Verse 27, And Yahweh will scatter you among the peoples, and you shall be left few in number among the nations where the Lord shall drive you. And the, that, that scattering has happened now three different, we know at least three or four different times, okay, of Israel from the land. Verse 28, And there you will, he says, when you get into the other nations, you're going to serve other gods and the work of men's hands, wood, stone, uh, neither, which neither see nor hear nor eat or smell. And basically he's saying, you're going to break my commandments because I've commanded you not to do these things. Okay, verse 29, from there, where? I've scattered you to the nations. From those nations, Israel, you will seek Yahweh your Elohim, and you will find him if you search for him with all of your heart and all of your soul. And when you're in distress and all these things have come upon you in the latter days, you will return to Yahweh, your God, and listen to his voice. For the Lord, Yahweh, your Elohim, is a compassionate God. He will not fail you, destroy you, nor forget the covenant with your fathers, which he swore to them, and, and that covenant being the land that they will inherit that land forever. But again, they can't inherit the land and stay in it and live in covenant disobedience. Yahweh always drives them out. But there's an end time driving and scattering them out that will result in the restoration of Israel and thus everything will be turned back right and we'll see what the law and the prophets promise as the restoration of Israel. One other passage, Deuteronomy 30. This is the promised restoration of Israel. There are many other passages that I'm not touching in the book of Deuteronomy, but I want to read this one, and then I'm going to turn it to David. And we're going to turn to, uh, David's going to turn us to Deuteronomy 32 and begin to pick up the Song of Moses. All right, Deuteronomy 31 through 10, I'm just going to read it. So it shall be when all of these things have come upon you. What things? The blessing and the curse. You know what he's alluding back to. Reread. If, just write this out in your Bible if you want. You got some micro, micron pens, okay? Write Deuteronomy 28, 
Because Israel will, in, they will go into the land and they will receive blessings because they're in a place of obedience. But once they start being driven out, they move into disobedience. The curses come. But what Yahweh says is there's a time, he says, when it will come that all these things, the blessings and the curses, when, all the, when those things have come upon you and you call them to mind in all the nations where the Lord your God has banished you, and you return to Yahweh your Elohim and obey Him with all your heart and soul according to all I command you today and your sons. Then Yahweh your Elohim will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. The problem is verse 2, Israel has never returned to Yahweh with all of their heart, all of their soul. This is new covenant language, Jeremiah 31, right? Ezekiel uh 26. So this has not been fulfilled. We're waiting for it, but it's after a time of them being banished in the nations and they're in distress in the latter days, they will come back. Verse 4, if your outcasts are at the ends of the earth or sky, from there the Lord your God will gather you and from there he will bring you back. This language is in Matthew 24, <laughs> like verses 29 to 31. That, that the angels will be sent out and be gather, gathering Israel. So that's a really interesting. Verse 5, And Yahweh your Elohim will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it, and he will prosper you, multiply you more than your fathers. Moreover, Yahweh your Elohim will circumcise your heart. This is New Covenant language, Jeremiah 31. He'll circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, in order that you may live. And Yahweh your Elohim will inflict all these curses on your enemies and all those who hate you and persecuted you. And you shall again obey Yahweh and observe all His commandments which I command you today. Then Yahweh your Elohim will prosper you abundantly in all the work of your hand, the offspring of your body, offspring of your cattle, the produce of your ground. For Yahweh will again rejoice over you for good just as He rejoiced over your fathers. Verse 10, if you obey Yahweh, your Elohim, to keep His commandments and His statutes which are written in this book of the law, if you turn to Yahweh your Elohim with all your heart and soul. So we're waiting for this to be fulfilled, and it only will happen at the end of the age, okay? And now we get another look at this whole reality sitting in the Song of Moses, Deuteronomy 32. David, I know that's a lot. Yeah, if you if you have your Bibles, um, we're going to kind of read a lot more out of the chapter. So if you'll turn to Deuteronomy 31. Um, I think one thing that's important to emphasize too, and David kind of did this throughout, but like where we are in the narrative is like the hope of the nations is bound up with finding blessing through Abraham right? And Abraham's God. And these promises that are promised to Abraham actually end up being like really crucial for the nations and the future, right? Like if Abraham doesn't inherit this piece of land, then God's promise is false. Which So that even that like necessitates Abraham actually rising from the dead, which you know we're not we're not going into the theology of the resurrection of the dead, but that develops more and more as the scriptures go on, 
but it's founded upon even God's promise to Abraham because he has to get up out of the ground and inherit the territory that God promised him and his lineage. So like it connects very real to us. Like, like all of us, we're going to go to our grave. <laughs> and unless God is faithful to the promise to Abraham, then we have no hope for resurrection either. Like, and, and obviously this, this whole theology plays out more and more in the scriptures and the promise of the coming of Jesus and his death and resurrection confirming the covenant promises and all this stuff, right? We have that. But the hope is bound up in the covenant. And so unless Israel inherits these promises, we don't inherit. You understand? Like God has bound these things up. This is the story. It's the story of the God of Israel. And there is no sub-story happening over here apart from the fulfillment of the promises, right? And so we're, we're trying to connect it to the patriarchs and these promises, but, but Deuteronomy kind of gives us this framework, and we have the pattern from the Torah is that God delivers his people, and then he makes covenant nationally with them, right? Exodus, deliverance, and then covenant. The same thing happens at the end of the age, deliverance, and then covenant. And we'll see that, you know, we, maybe we'll talk more about the new covenant stuff later, but, um, but the framework is that God actually delivers Israel from her enemies through the coming of the, the Messiah and all of these other passages through the prophets and even into the New Testament. And then he makes this covenant with them that David was talking about this, this new covenant with the nation. All right. So, but, but that's not the, the framework for tonight is primarily we're looking at Deuteronomy 31 and 32. This is called the Song of Moses, Deuteronomy 32, 1 through 43. Um, in Hebrew, it's ha'azinu, which is an imperative. It's the first word of the, the chapter. This is a normal thing in Hebrew. The first word kind of becomes the title. Um, so Hazinu is, is an imperative for give ear, listen, basically. Um, it's the first word in the chapter. And so um, we're going to sit down and work through this chapter tonight. And, um, but I, but I want to read this quote here on the notes. Um, Moses calls heaven and earth to witness of both his promulgation of the law and his recitation of the song so that Israel be without excuse when they experience the terrible consequences of their unfaithfulness. Through such devices, Deuteronomy presents the song of Moses as the law in a nutshell. The song of Moses functions as a poetic summary of the law. This song is probably like yeah i think i think probably definitely like one of the the most important chapters in the tanakh like deuteronomy 32 because it stretches the entire history and the entire story of israel from the beginning in genesis all the way to the latter days 
and it sets a paradigm that all of the prophets and all of the promises work off of the paradigm of what's going on here. Everything is from the, the foundations in the Torah. And this song, you know, you guys like, you remember stuff when, you remember songs a lot easier than you do data, you know? It's like, and, and so it's even the song itself was taught to the nation as, as a device to, to uh, evoke remembrance and like a constant like understanding of what's going on, God's plan, these purposes. And he's telling even the future before it happens. This is like a, a thing that Yahweh uniquely can do, right? You guys have read the Isaiah 46 passage about he who, who knows the end from the beginning is, stands out against all of these other gods who can't tell the future. They can't tell what's going to happen. But he's the one who presides over the future, so he tells the future, and then he orchestrates history in accordance with that, because he's, as the God of Israel, he is also the creator God. He's over all the others. There is no contest in what's going on. So, uh, Deuteronomy 31, let's look at the setting of the song. I'm going to kind of just read through. Um, but if you look at verse 14, So the Lord said to Moses, Behold, the time for you to die is near. Call Joshua, present yourselves at the tent of meeting, that I may commission him. So Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves at the tent of meeting. The Lord appeared in the tent in a pillar of cloud, and the pillar of cloud stood by the doorway of the tent. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, you're about to die, uh, to lie down with your fathers, and this people will arise and play the harlot with strange gods of the land into the midst which they are going. And I will, and will forsake me and break my covenant, which I have made with them. So they're going to break their agreement of the covenant. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them. So it's like the opposite of the, of the, uh, the, the priestly blessing, right? That the Lord's shine the light of his face upon you. It's the opposite. He hides himself from the nation. They'll be consumed and many evils and troubles will come upon them so that they will say in that day, is it not because our God is not among us that these evils have come upon us? I'll surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil they will do for they will turn to other gods. Now therefore, write this song for yourselves Teach it to the sons of Israel and put it on their lips so that this song may be a witness for me against the sons of Israel. So the song serves as a witness to vindicate God's faithfulness in the midst of Israel's unfaithfulness that's going to happen. For when I bring them into the land flowing with milk and honey, uh, milk and, and honey, which I swore to their fathers, they have eaten and are satisfied and become prosperous, then they will turn to other gods and serve them and spurn me and break my covenant. Then it shall come about, when many evils and troubles have come upon them, that this song will testify before them as a witness, for it shall not be forgotten from the lips of their descendants. For I know their intent which they are developing today, before I have brought them into the land which I have swore. 
And so Moses wrote this song the same day and taught it to the sons of Israel. And so we go down a little bit more, and he says, take the book of the law, place it beside the ark in verse 26. But look, uh, let's go down to uh, verse 28. Assemble to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers, that I may speak these words in their hearing and call the heavens and the earth to witness against them. For I know that after my death you will act corruptly, turn from the way which I have commanded you, and evil will befall you in the latter days. For you will do that which is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger with the work of your hands. Then Moses, in the hearing of all the assembly of Israel, uh, the, the words of this song until they were complete, spoke them. So, the song opens up with the first three verses. I just have a little, a simple outline here on the notes. You guys can look at more. Um, but but this, this song, I'll just say, um, this song is, is some of the older language in the Hebrew Bible. Some very, very old language. And it's actually filled with a lot of words and references that are um, single uses. So it's really hard uh, in some certain places for scholars, even as they're working in this song, um, to understand the meaning of certain words because there's nothing to compare it to. It's, it's like there's, there's not a, a single other word in the Hebrew Bible of this word. And there's a handful of them in, in this passage. So it's a, it's, it's a very old, ancient song, but it's been preserved and, and kept among the nation. And what's actually really interesting, too, before we jump in and, and dive into the content of it, is that um, in the actual manuscripts of, of Hebrew um, that we have, the earliest ones, you kind of have the lines going, and it's like, you know, Deuteronomy 31, it's just the paragraphs are happening. And then all of a sudden, once you hit to 32, it stops and it breaks, and then there's this dual column format. And, and what it's showing is that this is a poem. This is a song. This is more like the, the framework or, of the Psalms. Or I don't know if you guys, any of you read poetry, but it's like poetry is not written like narrative. It's not written like chapter books. It's, it has line breaks in it, right? But this song in the manuscripts actually they separated out line by line. Each poetic line is divided. And so it's meant to be understood and sung. It's meant to be part of liturgy. Okay? So, um, so anyways, the, the first part is verses 1 through 3. There's the calling of the witnesses in this address. And then in 4 through 18... There is this history of Yahweh's relationship with Israel, which has several subheadings under it. Then there's this response of Yahweh to Israel's unfaithfulness, rebellion, and idolatry. And then finally, there's this doxology. So let's just start working through. I'm just going to start reading and just kind of like, what I want tonight, I'm hoping that this is like, like a preview for all of us to like, go in and dig in this song, in this song, and really, like, let it, 
sink in because this thing actually shapes the paradigm of the Hebrew Bible. All of the prophets are building on the framework of these types of things. Um, I have in the notes here at the bottom, there's a footnote uh, that says that Deuteronomy 32 was a major source, the, quote, Bible, so to speak, of the prophetic movement. And it says virtually all the major themes of those prophets from the 6th and 7th century BCE, virtually all of these major themes have their antecedents in Deuteronomy 32. That's really profound. I mean, like, it helps unlock when the prophets are saying things. It's like, okay, they're working according to this paradigm. So, verses 1 through 3. Give ear, O heavens, let me speak. Let the earth hear the words of my mouth. Let my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, as the droplets on the fresh grass, the showers on the herb. For I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. So at the beginning, it's, it's speaking to, he addresses the heavens and the earth as the witnesses to this thing. He calls heaven and earth to witness to the song that he's going to talk about and sing about the nation of Israel and their history and their future. And, it, and the heavens and the earth become witnesses to almost like a, a lawsuit of this thing will stand as a witness against the nation in the midst of their unfaithfulness, that, that Yahweh is faithful and reliable and trustworthy even in the midst of their unfaithfulness, and He's going to do everything He said He would do. And the heavens and the earth are going to stand and, and affirm that testimony. So, verse 4, the rock, his work is perfect. All his ways are judgment. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. They have acted corruptly towards him. They're not his children because of their defect, but are a perverse and crooked generation. So you guys have probably heard that before. Jesus uses this, this language in Matthew 17, and it's actually used in Acts and, and Philippians and other places where they're alluding to uh, this, the nation of Israel acting corruptly against, against their God. It says, Do you thus repay the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is he not your Father who has bought you he has made you and established you. Remember the days of old. Consider the years of all generations. Ask your father and he'll inform you, your elders, and they'll tell you. So these past generations. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of man, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. So some translations say sons of Israel. We've already kind of worked through this, but um, if you have like an ESV or a, new, or a New Revised or anything like that, it'll say sons of God, taking into account the Dead Sea Scrolls, the, some of these older manuscripts, right? For the Lord's portion is His people. Jacob is the allotment of His inheritance. Um, and so I think we've kind of hit that enough, but in verse 10, 
He found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of a wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He guarded him as the pupil of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, like that hovers over its young. He spread his wings and caught them. He carried them on his pinions. The Lord alone guided him, and there was no foreign God with him. So this is, this is recounting after the choice of Abraham and choosing his inheritance with Abraham, the nation, God cares for them in the wilderness. And he's recounting the care of Israel through the Exodus and through this wilderness time that they've actually come through. And it, you know, even this imagery of God as the eagle that stirs up the nest, and it's the language of uh, the idea that eagles would like throw their the young out of the nest and let them drop, and then they would catch them to try to learn how to fly. It's like this this imagery of Yahweh is trying to care for his nation and lead them and help them to exist outside of Egypt and stuff, right? So it goes into 13. Uh, He made him ride on the high places of the earth. He ate the produce of the field. He made him suck honey from the rock, oil from the flinty rock, curds of cows, milk of the flock with fat of lambs, rams, the breed of Bashan and the goats, with the finest of the wheat and of the blood of grapes you drank wine. This is speaking of Israel going into the promised land, which they're about to do, and into the land of Canaan, and actually enjoy the fruits of, and fat of the land. The idea of their cattle producing lots of good milk and, and cheese and all of this stuff, honey from around, all, all of this sustenance, right? Verse 15, but Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. This is a name, it's kind of an ironic name. It means an upright one, but the the upright. And uh, it's kind of an ironic thing because he is actually crooked and perverse. Um, But he grew fat and kicked. You've grown fat, thick and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scorned the rock of his salvation. They made him, Yahweh, jealous with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons who were not God, to gods whom they have not known, new gods who came lately, whom your fathers did not dread. So they're, they're actually sacrificing to these other Elohim in the land, in Canaan. And it's, uh, this is a unique, in 17, uh, the reference to demons, and then it equates them as to gods who, whom they've not known. Um, and so these are these, the gods of the land, and in the land of Canaan, they're going after other gods, and it makes Yahweh jealous. They provoke him to anger in the land. And this is a theme throughout the prophets. I mean, it's just like over and over, the provocation and jealousy. You neglected the rock who begot you. You forgot the the God who gave you birth. The Lord saw this and spurned them because of the provocations of his sons and daughters. Then he said, I'll hide my face from them. 
I will see what their end shall be. Or another way it's rendered, it says, I will show you what their end will be. Speaking of their future. For they are a perverse generation, sons in whom there's no faithfulness. They have made me jealous with what is not God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are not a people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. So it's, if you're going to worship no gods, I'm going to provoke you with no people. It's, it's point for point. And it's not, it's obviously, he's not making a statement about the existential nature of gods. He's just saying, they're nothing. And I'm going to make you, I'm going to anger you with these other peoples who are like nothing, right? These other Gentiles. How does he do that? Well, we'll see. For a fire is kindled in my anger and burns to the lowest part of Sheol and consumes the earth with its yield and sets on fire the foundations of the mountains. I will heap misfortunes on them. I will use my arrows on them. They will be wasted by famine, consumed by plague and bitter destruction and the teeth of beasts I will send upon them with the venom of crawling things of the dust. Outside, the sword will bereave, and inside, terror, both young man and virgin, the, the nursling with the man of gray hair. So everybody, inside or outside, the judgment on the nation is coming with these, these elements of sucked dry by hunger, consumed by plagues and destruction, even wild beasts. And in verse 26... I would have, Yahweh says, I would have said, I will cut them to pieces. I will remove the memory of them from men. Total destruction, right? Had I not feared the provocation by the enemy that their adversaries would misjudge and that they would say, our hand is triumphant and the Lord has not done this. So the issue is that Yahweh has bound himself up with the nation and he's using these Gentiles to, to chastise Israel and all of these elements of plague and all of this stuff. And he doesn't want the Gentiles to get the idea that it's because they're mighty that this is happening. His name is at stake because he's bound himself ethnically with Israel, Right? So, um, and this, this is the theme, we don't have time to look at these passages, but this is the theme through the prophets of actually the, at the end, the vindication of God's name is, happens in light of the nations are mocking and saying, where's your God? Like, it, he's actually concerned with fulfilling his promises to vindicate his name in the sight of nations and these other gods, because they mock his promises. Uh, verse 28, For Israel, they're a nation lacking in counsel. There's no understanding in them. Would that they were wise, that they understood this, that they would discern their latter end. This goes back to verse 20. of He's talking about, I will hide my face from them, to see what their latter, their end will be. And he's saying that they are lacking in counsel, and if they would understand, this is the framework from 
the blessing and the curses. These things are coming upon you because you have, have provoked me to anger. You've not walked in exclusive devotion, right? Verse 30, how could one, this 30 and 31 are like a, um, kind of like an editorial note. It's either Yahweh speaking or it's, uh, or it's the author, the, um, the poet here saying, how could one chase a thousand, two put 10,000 to flight unless Israel's rock, their rock, had sold them? And the Lord given them up. Indeed, the nation's rock, their gods, are not like our rock, our God. Even our enemies themselves judge this. So what we have here is the idea of one Gentile from the Gentile nation chasing a thousand of Israel, right? Two putting ten thousand to flight. It's it's a it's a flipped reverse scenario. Even in the prophets, it actually talks about this thing being true for Israel. But what's happening here is Israel has the majority, and they're losing badly. Even at the end of the age, it, it will be that it will be staggering that Israel, who has the biggest muscles in the region is losing so badly. It's only explainable by the fact that Yahweh, the God of Israel, handed them over to be disciplined. It's a humbling thing. Okay, 32. Um, David and I were talking about this today a little bit, um, but and I won't get into this, but the... the it seems like 32 is referencing, um, it's difficult with the pronouns, but it seems like the there is talking about the enemies. Um, but there's a lot of debate on how the pronouns work out. It could be reference to Israel, but seems most consistent reading is, the nation's vine is the vine of Sodom in the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of poison, their clusters bitter, their wine is the venom of serpents and deadly poison of cobras. Is it not laid up in store with me, sealed up in my treasuries? Vengeance is mine and retribution. In due time their foot will slip, for the day of their calamity is near, and the impending things are hastening upon them. For the Lord will vindicate his people and will have compassion on his servants when he sees that their strength is gone and there is none remaining bond or free. So this, what this is, is God uses these Gentile nations who, who, are, who are really like, their vine is the vine of Sodom, their, their venom of serpents, deadly poison of co cobras, like the, the intensity of these nations that are used in Yahweh's hand to discipline His own nation, His own people. This example happens through Assyria, through Babylon, through all these patterns that David brought up. But, but Yahweh has things in store, and the vengeance is His, not these nations. He says, the vengeance is mine, and I am going to actually take the cup of wrath that I'm giving to Israel to drink, 
through these nations, and I'm going to serve that cup to these nations because they've overstepped. And this is what happens in the, the pattern of, of God's judgment is that he raises up these Gentile nations to chastise his people on the basis of the covenant. But then he turns, in, because of their wickedness, he turns and uses this context to judge those nations that he has gathered to chastise his people. This happens even in the final things of the end of the age. And what it does is it produces Israel who has no strength, there is no ruler and no helper to assist them. None remaining bond or free. And he says to them in verse 37, where are, the, where are their gods? The rock in which they sought refuge. It's, it's kind of the sarcasm here. Where, where are these rocks who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering? Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your hiding place. See now that I, I am he, there was no God besides me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded and it is I who heal. There is none who can deliver from my hand. If I lift up my hand to heaven and say as I live forever, if I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on justice, I'll render vengeance on my adversaries and repay those who hate me. I'll make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword will devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the long-haired leaders of the enemy. So this is Yahweh executing the vengeance on the nations that he has brought and gathered to discipline his people. He executes the vengeance on them with his lightning sword. I mean, this is like, it, it actually, like, he's, he's talking about my flashing sword of lightning that he extends over these nations that he's gathered and repaying those who hate him. And it's a vindication of himself in the sight of everybody that he framed this thing out, right? Verse 43. I know we got to wrap up really soon. Verse 43 is the doxology of the song. It's the final end of it. And verse 43 has, I'll just read the, uh, I'm using the New American Standard here, but um, rejoice, O nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and render vengeance on his adversaries and will atone for his land and his people. Atoning for his land and his people and the, the blood shed on the land is that actually he blood defiles the land and so he actually sheds the blood of of those who are shedding his people's blood on the land he destroys the armies he's using to chastise his people and he atones for his land now this one um, has the nations responding to the witness that God said this beforehand. He prophesied what would happen in the latter days for Israel. And this happened and played out in history, just like he said. And the nations are actually responding to him, delivering them. 
and being faithful to his promises and coming alongside and rejoicing in this, right? Uh, if you look at the bottom of the notes, I know we need to wrap up, but um, at the bottom of the notes, there's two other uh, traditions, kind of like what we talked about in Deuteronomy 32.8. Um, if you have a New American Standard, New King James, or NIV Bible, they're going to use the Masoretic text, which is what I just read. If you have an ESV or a new, new Revised Standard Bible, they actually take into account the Dead Sea Scrolls, which is the oldest tradition. Um, and the verse 43 reads, Rejoice, O heavens, with, together with him, and bow down to him, all you gods. So it doesn't have the nations in picture. It has the gods of the nations bowing down to Yahweh. All right? Um, and then the Septuagint is kind of the middle of the road. They, they take both traditions and kind of cram them together. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, and they say, Delight, O heavens, with him. Rejo- uh, worship him, you sons of God. Delight, O nations, with his people, and prevail with him, all you angels of God. So it has gods and nations and Gentiles coming. Paul quotes this in, uh, Philipp- I mean, in Romans 15, verse 10. He s- says, he just quotes the simple phrase, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. But he's quoting from the Septuagint that has gods and nations. But this is this paradigm in Deuteronomy 32. There's this pattern that God uh, uses: is that He is jealous in the covenant for His people, and when they step away from the covenant, they 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 walk away from exclusive devotion then he brings upon them the things that he said, the discipline from Deuteronomy 27, 28, all the way through. His faithfulness to judge them and discipline them is just as much a part of his faithfulness as his faithfulness to restore them and deliver them. And so the pattern is he raises up these Gentile nations chastise them, but in the midst of that, that becomes the context for him to judge those nations and deliver Israel as a witness to all the earth. And then the nations will bow their knee. The gods will bend their knee. These other passages like in the Psalms, and I mean, this is, this is basically like Philippians 2, like every knee bowing at the close of history so to speak, of Yahweh being exalted in his plan that he said from the beginning, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen in the latter days. So any framework for the latter days that doesn't have the pattern in this thing is not built on the narrative. And so this this helps us as we move into the story, into the prophets, and into the unfolding of the history and the Psalms and all of these things are building on this same framework, the lens from the Song of Moses and from the covenant that, that sets it forth. So, anything you need to add to close us out tonight? And Let's take, uh, I will read a passage and we'll be done. Let's read Luke 21 in light of what we just heard about 
this vengeance coming. Let, let's watch it. Many, obviously, uh, that carry an amillennial position, maybe even a post-millennial position, they would place this passage in 70 A.D. The context will not allow it. Okay, so uh, let's just read this, though, and, and this will close us out. This is like a great passage to help us when we look back to, like, Deuteronomy 32. This is like, this is that, that unfolding picture. And this is Luke's version of the Olivet Discourse concerning Israel at the end. But I want you to think about Israel today in a present state. In that land promised to Abraham, okay, who are grasping for a sense of covenant with other nations as they just made with the UAE. And there'll be a final covenant agreement that they will make and it'll become a snare to them but look at this Luke 21 20 to 24 when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies can you imagine seeing this I believe in our lifetime we'll see this when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies then recognize that her desolation this is the context for the abomination of desolation rooted in Daniel, spoken of four times. That, that her desolation is at hand. Verse 21, Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of the city depart, and let not those who are in the country enter the city. Verse 22, Because these are the days of vengeance. This is again, he's quoting Deuteronomy 32, verse 35. These are the days of vengeance that the nations will come in the latter days. These are the days of vengeance in order that all things which are written may be fulfilled. 23. Woe to those who are with child and those who nurse babes in those days, for there will be great distress. This is Daniel 12, verse 1. There will be great distress in the land, Israel and wrath to this people, the Jews. 24. And they will fall by edge of the sword, he's quoting Amos 9, and will be led captive into all the nations. Here's the end time expulsion. They'll be led into all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles for three and a half years until the times of the Gentiles will be fulfilled. And this is the vengeance of the nations coming. And you can reread the rest of it, but I just think that what that thing was just so prominent in my heart this week. And uh, I just think it's a great context to just think through what's going on and what we've heard here tonight. Father, we thank you for your word, things that uh, are not clear at times because, Lord, some of these things are fresh, some of these things are new. But, Father, we ask you that as we work through Torah, that there would be a greater clarity of the instruction of the things that we've heard here tonight. That, God, you are faithful 
to your covenant and Israel has not been. But you're faithful to your end of the covenant and the fact that you will come with discipline, curses, and expulsion from the land. You're faithful to your word. Lord, make us a people who watch and pray, who discern what's going on in Israel and the Middle East. God, I pray that you would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation. God, help us to watch and pray and discern what's going on for the sake of your people and for the sake of the church in these days. Thank you, Father, for this evening. I pray that you would help us to discern these things by your scriptures and by the Holy Spirit. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys.